You say, well, what is Philippians about? Philippians is usually characterized as a thank you letter from the Apostle Paul. He's writing it to the church. That's a bit of an oversimplification, but um, generally speaking, it, it's accurate. So Paul is in prison at this time, and we think he's, he's likely, I think he's likely in prison. It's an earlier imprisonment in Ephesus. Well, whether he's in Ephesus or Rome, it doesn't matter. The, the, insofar as the Roman prison system was constructed in that day uh, such that they didn't provide you with the basic necessities of life, of survival. They didn't give you food or, or toiletries or replacement clothing or anything like that. It was incumbent upon the friends and family members of the prisoner to supply those kinds of needs. Or in the case of Paul, it was, it was incumbent upon his Christian family of the, of the churches to, to do so. Well, when this church in Philippi, which is located up in northern Greece... Here's that Paul's in prison in Ephesus, located in western Turkey. They take up a collection for him, and they send it to, to him uh, through this messenger, courier, by the name of Epaphroditus. So Epaphroditus is coming. He's bringing the, the gifts of the church to Paul. And maybe it was either during the journey there or shortly after he arrived, he becomes deathly ill. Maybe it's an instance, it's a case of scarlet fever, but he he nearly dies. But the good news is that he gets better, and he's able to deliver the gifts to Paul. But Paul is a little worried about his his future health condition, and so he sends them back to Philippi a bit prematurely. Presumably the Philippians were hoping that he would be there on the ground beside Paul for a lengthy period of time, so he could be like a personal assistant to Paul. Well, Paul turns turns him right around and sends him back to Philippi, carrying the letter, the epistle to the Philippians, or this thank you letter for the gifts that he's received and addressing some of the pastoral issues in the church. Which leads us to Philippians 2.19, where we read, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. Because I was, he was first cheered when he received news from Epaphroditus. About Timothy, I have no one else like Timothy who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone else looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy, he's proved himself. Because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself, basically, that I'm going to be released and that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For Epaphroditus longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and he almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him 
because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help that you could not, that you could not give me. I have four comments that I want to make on this passage that, um, that actually really excite me. The first is this, and it has to do, it's centered around his name, Epaphroditus. Who do you think Epaphroditus was named after? I'll give you a hint. If you, you take off the us at the end and you put on an E, Epaphrodite. Epaphrodite. Oh, it's, he's named after Aphrodite, the, the Greek goddess of love, of sex. Greek goddess who's usually depicted topless, right? The, the Roman goddess Venus. The, the, back in that day, there were actually uh, Aphrodite cults where you can imagine what they do. <laughs> They're devoted to the worship of Aphrodite and they um, usually the, the types of worship services they have are you know, kind of the wild debauchery kind of, of worship. If you have a young Christian, the, the Aphrodite and Aphrodite cults and all of that would come with very negative connotations. I mean, you, you'd, I've noticed that when people are kind of leaving an a earlier pagan life and they're, they're coming to Jesus Oftentimes, they want nothing to do with that old pagan life. I and mean, that's why some of us, um, we, we burn our Pink Floyd t-shirts <laughs> once we came to faith, right? Or that's why some of us, I mean, if you had a tattoo on, what did I say? What about Pink Floyd? <laughs> I said some of us did that, you know. <laughs> or if you, if you, I mean, you can think of the biker guy. He has the, the tattoo that says, Hell's angels. And then when he came to faith in Jesus, he, he thought, well, I, I need to cover that up. Um, we, get really, we get really concerned about old pagan associations. Isn't it interesting that when Epaphroditus becomes a Christian, you know, why doesn't Paul make him change his name? Or why doesn't Paul just get the eraser out? and well, okay, we're, Instead of Epaphroditus, I now call you, you know, John Paul III or some really great... Christian name. Why doesn't he do that? Um, and it's interesting because oftentimes in the Bible, not uh, sometimes in the Bible, people do get renamed. The Apostle Paul is an example of that. He used to be Saul. Now he is Paul. But if you go through and you just tabulate all of the different Christian names that you find in the New Testament, you know what you find? I mean, most of them are named after pagan gods. Most, I mean, most of them are not... They're, they're not Christian names because they didn't change them. Why didn't they change them? And I think this is why. Because God is not so concerned about what something used to be. He's, what he's concerned about is what he redeems it, what, what he turns it into. He's not so concerned about you know, the previous associations. He, he's excited about the new creation and so you get a guy like Epaphroditus, and who knows? Like maybe his parents named him that way because they were Aphrodite worshippers. Maybe he was actually the offspring of one you know, wild Aphrodite knight, so to speak. But but it doesn't matter what the guy used to be. It what matters is what he's been turned into. And it just so happens that he's like this model 
of Christian humility and service. As Paul's holding him up um, for the church in this passage. And, you know, I have met a lot of Christians, okay, not a lot, but some Christians who are uptight about old associations. So maybe, maybe you've heard this too, like, you shouldn't celebrate Christmas because, hey, don't you know, December 25, that used to be the celebration of the God Sol Invictus, you know, the Roman God. It was just a pagan solar holiday. So, I mean, we shouldn't do that anymore. Um, uh, many customs today that are even part of Christian life have previous pagan associations. The use of wedding rings, for instance. Uh, uh, going, um, meeting someone for lunch on Thursday. Thor's Day. You know, Thor of, Nor of, of Norse mythology. Blowing out the candles on a birthday cake after making a wish. But friends, I don't think that that's something that God really wants us to be uptight about. And you can go through your life like being afraid of, of previous associations and being contaminated by those, but it's not the old associations that matters. It's the new redemptive work that is being done. And so when I wake up on Thursday and I read, this is the day the Lord has made, I'm like, this is Jesus' day, not, not Thor's day, right? And when I, I get to preside in a wedding ceremony, and you know, I make them say, with this ring, I thee wed in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is not, it's not a pagan fertility ritual anymore. This is a golden promissory bond of the covenant that we are making before God right now. Um, and then even with the blowing out of the birthday candles, I don't know what you do, but when I, right before I blow, I, I pray. It's just one of those quick nanosecond prayers, but it's not just a wish that I'm doing, it's a prayer. And in all of these, all of these, it's not what it used to be. It's what God has made it into right now. Um, and so I do think that he would, he would very practically say to the guy who's got an obscene or some type of tattoo and he comes to faith in Jesus. No, don't, don't go get dry erase marker <laughs> and try to cover it up. No, because uh, you might once have been devoted to Aphrodite, but you're Jesus' now. That's the first point. Second, <laughs> so my kids got the, their first taste of boogie boarding in, in Monterey. Last, last week or a week and a half ago. And I'm amazed. They're, they're so Idahoan insofar in as they, they would go out into that water. Every surfer that's out there is in a you know, full wetsuit. But my kids are just playing around in it seems like 40 below degree water <laughs> and thinking nothing of it. And um, so I wonder if you can guess which of my children was... She doesn't know I'm going to say this. Oops, I said she... Uh, which of my children was the most adept at body uh, boogie boarding for the first time in her, her life? Any guesses? It, it turned out to be Cora. She, she, Allie was the bravest. I mean, she was the first one out there. But Cora was adept at just getting on top of every wave except for one. And it was, it was the big one. It was the big spill that she took. So you, we, could, we were standing on the shore we see the waves coming in, and we see one out there. I'm like, oh, if, if she can only get on that one. 
Well, she did. And that one got on top of her. <laughs> and she comes back onto the shore, you know, shaking um, sand out of her ear. And <laughs> salt is pouring out of her nose. And I mean, she was just, you know, clobbered by... You remember the very first time you were clobbered by the power of a wave. Now, that's... I want you to take that metaphor and then use it in a, kind of a sober, sober light. Verse 27. Sometimes the way that I read the Bible is I get, I get pictures from the words there. And so here, here's the picture I had. He's saying, 27, Epaphroditus was ill. He almost died. But God had mercy on him, not only on him also, but on me, to, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Upon sorrow, upon sorrow, upon sorrow. And see, that's the picture I had. It, it's a, Paul says, God spared me a tidal wave of, of sorrow. And that's the type of sorrow you experience when you lose somebody you're really close to. Um, at some point during the grieving process, at some point in the, the recovery some well-meaning friend is going to come and tell you not to cry because they've, they've gone to a better place and they're, they're going in, they've gone into heaven and they're in the very presence of Jesus. And with that friend, and they're totally well-meaning, but what they don't understand is, is that maybe they just never experienced the tidal wave of sorrow. Um, and if you've lost a, a mom early in life like I did, or if you've lost a, a child uh, at birth, like my sister did. I-, I wonder if sometimes what we do is we, we're secretly judgmental of other Christians. We look at them and we say, I thought that guy was a really, he was really mature and spiritual. I'm really surprised that this, whatever the grieving is, what this suffering is, that he's not handling it better. Have you ever like almost been ashamed of yourself as you've reached that kind of judgmental characterization of others? But it's, it's in that moment, you're forgetting that the loss of loved ones is, is a colossal tidal wave of sorrow. And what, if they're grieving, what they're grieving for is not simply for the loss of that, that one person, but also for the loss of themselves. Have we said this before? Like, when somebody you desperately love dies, you not only lose them, but you lose you. You lose part of you. You lose 75% of you. Um, At least for the rest of this life, you go without that other person and you go without that other piece of of you. And I want you to make that mistake when you're you're around a grieving Christian or friend. The, The apostle of joy, the guy who writes the book of joy, if you know anything about the book of Philippians, it is the letter of joy. He says, rejoice, I'm full of joy, rejoice always. I say it again, rejoice is the same guy who says that if Epaphroditus died, I would have been carried under by that wave. And so, uh, we should not imagine that the call to rejoice is a call to forget the multiple human dimensions of our daily lives. After all, part of Jesus' own path of humble obedience involved weeping and agony, both at his friend's graveside with Lazarus and in Gethsemane. Would we dare rebuke Jesus himself for failing to have a pure, untroubled joy at those moments? Of course we would not. Um, I also thought it was interesting 
in 28 that he says, I'm going to send Epaphroditus back to you so that, because basically he says, I'm going to send him back to you because if I keep him here, I'm going to have more anxiety. Now, he's going to go on later in this book and say, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition, present present your request to God. He's going to say, do not be anxious. And yet, he says, but man, I would have been anxious. He says, rejoice at all times. And he says, "Um, rejoicing is not incompatible with just being carried along with that wave. If you've ever, I presume you have experienced just deep sorrow. And if you're surprised how hard it hits you, you, that image of the wave is... There's no way that Cora Cheney could have stood up and fought against the wave. <laughs> it's just too powerful. Good luck at fighting the wave. It's okay, though, if you experience that, because the Apostle Paul um, would have and did many times. Number three. Kind of full of stories this morning. Um, another one I want to tell you. Back in June, I had the privilege of officiating at Damon and Jacqueline Wood's uh, wedding ceremony. And it took place out of the Boise Depot, which was a really beautiful, iconic spot to have a wedding. If you've never done, uh, if, if you're thinking about a spot, they don't, I don't get any royalties for saying that, but um, beautiful. And there, it will be definitely one of the most memorable weddings that I've ever performed because a storm was blowing in on us. And we could see it an hour beforehand, just like building up over the mountains. And we were just hoping, praying, cross fingers, that it would come through, or I mean come, come through after the, the ceremony, because we didn't want to have to move everything inside. Well, the ceremony starts at it was either 6 or 6.30, I think. And about halfway through, the, the wind is gusting, and, and I've started my sermon, and there, there's a gust of wind that almost knocks us all over, and we feel little raindrops, and I... It's like, oh, okay, I'm going to have to cut this short. The the preacher's greatest nightmare is to have to cut his sermon, (laughs) his wedding sermon short, right? I've got great material here. But you know you've been to a wedding that that the wedding attendee's greatest joy is the idea (laughs) that he cuts his sermon short. I'll remember it for that reason. And I'll also remember it, I mean, I'll remember it for the bride and the groom. But the reason that those of you who attended it will remember it as well for this reason is the, the toast made by the, the best man was the best toast I've ever heard in my life. It was delivered by Damon's friend, Nate Shaw. Nate used to be part of All Saints. He's an engineer, and he got relocated to Salt Lake City, and we'd do anything to get him back. But, I mean, his toast was the most... Dignified praise, Christ-centered praise of, of another man I think I've ever heard. Um, and so I knew that just speaking in, in generalities like that wouldn't be good in a sermon. So I emailed Nate this week and said, hey, can, did you write a rough draft? Can you pass it along? Because I want to share, share elements of it. And, and he said, well, I sort of did. And he sent me, sent me the email. I read it and I was like, this is not your toast. I mean, it doesn't even come close to a pro- It was one of those that you just had to be there to hear it. He hit that ball, and, and it's still flying. He hit it so hard. It was, 
It was so beautiful. And what it did, what I realized, is that a, a great praise of another man, not, not only does it give you a window into the greatness of that other man, but it gives you more even a window into the greatness of the man who provides a toast, doesn't it? The, the, um, the size, okay, see if you agree with this, the size and substance of a man's heart is his ability to recognize and praise the virtues of others. And that's what I see in the Apostle Paul in this passage. He's, I mean, at first glance, it's almost like a PR campaign for Timothy and, and Epaphroditus, but it's not that. It's not, he doesn't praise these men in front of the church for, for purposes of flattery. Or he doesn't, it's not about inflating egos or publicly boasting in the accomplishments of those who are part of his, his team in order to reflect some credit on himself. This is how the Apostle Paul's always acting. The guy always seems to find a way to have, to recognize a Christian virtue in somebody else and to, to, to praise him publicly. It's almost like if you've ever met a guy who is a true southern gentleman, have you ever met somebody like that? They have an ability to, not in a flattery sense, but an ability to like make introductions between uh, different sets of people so that as they're praising this other person, they make you want to enter into and, and enjoy the, the admirable qualities of that other person. Um, they're always inviting other people to admire and appreciate those whom they admire and appreciate for, for tr- truly good reasons. And so that's why the Puritans, when they look at this passage, they put it in a very Puritanly way. They say, the size and the substance of the spirit of a man's soul is seen by the spontaneity and the generosity and the exuberance and the warmth of his praises of others. Just as the smallness and stinginess and sullenness and mullishness I didn't know there was such a word as mullishness. But the mullishness of another man's soul is disclosed to us by his muteness, his muteness towards the goodness of others. By my, by my holding up Nate you know, as, a, as an example in this, I'm not suggesting that Nate's sinless or that Nate's perfect. I know he'd be totally, he'd be mortified if he knew that I was, I was using him as an example. When I heard him praise his brother in that Christ-centered manner, I thought to myself, I, man, I wish, I, I want to be like that. Um, and I want a church. I want a church that talks about each other like that. We don't need psychologists to tell us that probably, humanly speaking, the most formative thing about our psyches is... It, the, the, the greatest influence upon a child's emotional and spiritual welfare, even adults' emotional and spiritual welfare, is the way in which other people speak about us, uh, particularly how our moms and dads speak about us. Are they appreciated and, and praised? Do they hear that from their mom and dads? Isn't it interesting that Timothy, Paul says, is like a son to me, and it's Father Paul who's praising a son in front of the whole church? Fourthly and finally. First, fourth and last. So in this joke, three friends die in an auto, automobile accident, and they find themselves at the gates of heaven. But before entering, they are each asked a question by St. Peter, 
who uh, I don't know why St. Peter is always the, the doorkeeper to heaven in jokes, but it seems like that's his, his rule. So, so St. Peter asked the first guy, um, or no, he asked all three guys, when you are in your casket and your friends and family are mourning you, what would you like to hear them say about you? First guy replies, uh, I would like to hear them say that I was a great doctor and a great family man. Everybody's nodding their heads. That's pretty good. Second guy replies, I would like to hear that I was a wonderful husband and a wonderful school teacher who made a huge difference in our, difference in our children of tomorrow. Everybody's like, that's good. They're nodding their heads. The last guy replies, I would like to hear them say, the, the casket is moving. He's still alive. <laughs> I know some of you are podcast people, and uh, some of you aren't, but I would, I'd, I'll post it on that website this week. There's an incredibly good uh, interview of David Brooks. I've talked about him before, you know, New York Times op-ed columnist who has recently come out with a book on character. It's a fabulous interview of him. Um, and even if you know David Brooks and you don't agree with David Brooks' politics, that's fine. There's still... Uh, much in this interview to be commended, where he, he says, the, the whole premise of my book is premised on resume versus eulogy. You know, the stuff we put on our resume is what we bring to the marketplace, whether we're good at math or we're good at spreadsheets, we're good at selling things. The stuff we put in our eulogies are what they say about us after we're dead, whether we were courageous, honorable, kind, and capable of great love. The founding thesis of my book is that we all know, we all know that eulogy virtues are more important, and yet, like, our society is devoted to spending pretty much all of our time thinking about resume virtues. Like, most, we have a much better grasp of how to build a career than how to build a character or how to build a soul. He said about once a month, I'd run across a person who, who just seemed very deeply good, who almost radiated an inner light. Uh, this type of person, they listened well. They, they made you feel funny and valued. You, you often catch, caught them uh, looking after other people, and as they do so, their laugh is musical and their manner is infused with gratitude. These people are not thinking about what wonderful work they're doing. They're not even thinking about themselves at all. But when I would meet that type of person, I realized it would just brighten my day, and then I would have a, very, a, a much sadder thought it occurs to me that I'm not like them. Uh, that I have achieved, I'm using New York Times op-ed columnist. I have achieved a pretty high level of career success, but I have not achieved that. I have not achieved that generosity of spirit or that depth of character. Um, and I think the easy way to take a passage like this is to say, Timothy Epaphroditus. Don't you, you should just be like Timothy and Epaphroditus. I find, maybe it's just because sometimes I'm a little too melancholy. I look at the way they're described in this passage, and I say, I'm not like that. And Timothy, it says, Timothy, I don't have anybody else in my whole life like Timothy, because he is so genuinely interested in your well-being. He's so other-centered. And it really begs this question. And I see people kind of, I'm losing you now, so... (laughs) How do we move from caring about what others think about us in the moment to how they're going to think about us when we are gone? 
And I don't know, there's not any easy answers to that. Are, are, are there? I, I think I probably need to buy his book if he answers that question. It's, it's got to be difficult because we live in a resume. This is a resume world. This is not a eulogy world. And if you're young, you're bulletproof. You're never going to die forever, right? Um, but maybe it starts with being aware that there is that problem in my life, just an honest assessment. Yes, I've really got, I've got a fine resume. I do not have a fine eulogy. Oh, sure, they'll say some nice obligatory things about me, but, but not really, not like this. And then I think it especially starts by, it's got to start by believing more deeply the gospel. It always goes back to the gospel. Jesus died for me. Jesus rose for me. If I really believe that, then that will produce a lifetime of other-centered gratitude and service. Of course it will. Um, so in a passage like Philippians 2, I just want to challenge you to believe the gospel so that you will live so as to be missed. Epaphroditus would have been really missed. Timothy would have been really missed. Would you, look, if you kick the bucket tomorrow, like, would you be really missed by your church? <laughs> That's not a fair question, but. <laughs> would you be missed by this community? Like, there are so many, and there's so many ways that you could be other-centered servants in the Treasure Valley. I think if, I could just, I can look out there and I see different ministries that are represented. Love, Inc., Genesis World Mission Clinic, Trail Life USA, Compassion International, um, Theological Education by Extension. I mean, all these things are like, they're sitting in this room. Um, And I'm not trying to add just one more thing to your already wastedly busy life, but there's at least two of you, not just one, but two of you in this room who you know, you kicked the bucket today, and you would not be missed. Live in such a way as to be missed. Amen.